This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know this week in honor of Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel Independence Day. For those listening in real time, at least, we have a fabulous guest named Rudy Rockman. Rudy is a fascinating individual who does some very, very unique things in the pro-Israel space. I have to say he's one of the most articulate spokesmen and creative spokesmen for the Jewish and Zionist perspective. He's also incredibly courageous and bold in his promotion of those agendas. So I think you will really enjoy hearing his story and the way he is able to frame Israel and the cause that is so dear to him and to so many of our listeners. But before we get to Rudy, a quick reminder to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, at Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Please share with your friends, family, and others so that they can learn about this podcast as well. Everyone's stuck at home during the coronavirus pandemic, looking for quality content to perhaps distract them from all the news and even more aspirationally to ennoble them and uplift them and help us have a window into the greatness that is among us and that is possible really within each and every one of us. And with that, I introduce our conversation with Israel activist, Rudy Rockman. We are here with Rudy Rockman, pro-Israel activist with a fascinating story. Really interesting, unique, creative, and excited to hear about that. How are you, Rudy? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you. And I read about you actually online, hadn't heard about your story before. And as soon as I saw that, I said, we got to get this guy on. So... Let's take it from the top, Rudy. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you grew up and so forth. Sure. So I think uh, every Jew, to, in my opinion, is from Israel because that's the place where our identity is from, not necessarily where we're born, raised, where we passed on. Um, so I was born in France. My mom's side of the family was born in Morocco. My mom was the first generation born in France. Uh, in 1948, they were kicked out of Morocco uh, when there was a massacre of their village of Ujda. It was a sort of retaliation by the local Arab community as for the creation of Israel. Uh, my father's side of the family was born in Poland, in Krasnik. During the Holocaust, they fled to France in order to hide from what was happening at the time, and they survived in uh, France. So both my parents were first generation born in France, and I was also born in France. Uh, at the age of three, my family decided to move to Israel. Age of five, uh, they realized that it was pretty hard to uh, make a living there. So they decided to move to America for five years. Uh, five years became 10 years, became 15 years, and they've been since trapped in the diaspora. Uh, growing up, particularly in Miami for most of my childhood, I still had a sort of uh, identity crisis because specifically in Miami, unlike other places in the US, um, no one really identifies as American. Uh, you identify, even if you're born in America, you identify as Argentinian, Venezuelan, Colombian, Haitian, Cuban, Jamaican, you really identify as where your parents, grandparents, or wherever your culture comes from. So I immediately had to be identified by a million different things because uh, both my parents were born, uh, their parents were born in all sorts of different places. So at school, I was the French kid. Uh, when I visit family in France, I was the American cousin. I'm also half Ashkenaz and half Sephardic and uh, Israeli and Jewish and Moroccan and Polish. And apparently who I am depends on who's asking me that question or where that question is being asked. So at a very early age, I had a sort of uh, identity crisis to figure out that answer for myself. And I had an experience uh, with anti-Semitism at the age of seven 
that made me realize that it didn't matter where I was born, grew up, lived in, traveled to, resided in, uh, I was a Jew. And being a Jew didn't only mean being a part of what uh, we tend to call a religion, uh, but way more than that, because I realized that um, in a religion, it's defined as the belief system in a God, deity, book, or prophet. So if you reject a religion, that God, deity, book, or prophet, you're no longer part of it. So Christianity, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not a Christian. Uh, Buddhism, if you don't believe in the teachings of Buddha, then you're not a Buddhist. But yet in Judaism, even if you don't believe in the Torah and Hashem, which I particularly do, but if you don't, you're still a, way more than just a belief system. So I think the word religion does not do justice to who we are. Um, and so that started making me ask deeper questions. It's like, okay, so if I'm not a part of a religion, it's not just a secondary belief system identity. It's really my primary identity and I'm the descendant of a people. Why am I called a Jew if the word Jew comes from Judah, right? And I'm from the tribe of Levi from both sides of my family. My mom descends from Kohanim. My dad descends from Levim. So if I'm not from Judah, why am I called a Jew? Well, going to a Jewish day school, I learned a little bit about Jewish history and there was a split amongst the tribes and the last kingdom that existed uh, was Malchut Yehuda. And we all were kicked out of Malchut Yehuda. That's why we're now called Jews. So at a, a young age, I realized, okay, if the only reason I'm called a Jew is because the name of my land then was called Judea. If the name of my land today is called Israel, which is actually the proper name of the land and the nation, including my tribe, that makes me Israeli. Now, when I say Israeli, I don't mean you necessarily grew up with Eyal Golan and Shlomo Artsi and Bisli and Bamba, which I particularly did, but it means that you're a descendant of a 4,000-year-old people that today are called Israel and throughout history have also been called Israel. And so from that moment on, whenever someone asks me where I'm from, I'd say I'm from Israel and I'm Israeli. And I actually think, before I let you ask the last question, <laughs> the next question, I think that uh, every Jew, when they're asked where they're from, they, they should say Israel and that Israel is home. Because if us as Jews don't consider Israel as home, then how are we to expect the rest of the world to think that Israel is the home of the Jewish people if we ourselves don't say so? Would anyone follow up and say, oh, where, where in Israel are you from? I'm also from Israel. <laughs> well, then say? they have to go and explain the, uh, my people a few thousand years ago were physically displaced from our homeland. And so we have been moving and moving and moving. But that's where we come from. And hopefully we'll undo that justice one day. Nice. So early, early on, were you, besides being Israeli, uh, were you passionate about uh, Israel in terms of, you know, as a cause? Did you visit all the time? Did you, you know, did you know a lot about the political situation? What was kind of your actual connection to modern Israel at that time? Yeah. So that experience with anti-Semitism at the age of seven, uh, first of all, made me understand who I was. But it did something else for me where I promised myself that from that moment on, whenever I'd see any form of anti-Semitism that it would exist, I would have to be prepared for it, not only emotionally, not only intellectually, uh, not only physically, but also ideologically, meaning understanding the greater ideas as to why this is happening and figuring out a way how to react to it in a way that it prevents it from continuously continuing. Um, so I came from two very strong Zionist, proud Jewish parents. Uh, so definitely had a surrounding that uh, brought me a lot of knowledge uh, and passion within my own household. I went to Jewish day school. I would go to Israel every single summer. Uh, when I was Academy, Israel, where'd you go? Uh, in Miami, I, from first to fourth grade, I went to David Posnack. Fifth to eighth grade, I went to Hillel. Hello, and then yeah. in, uh, in uh, high school, I went to Crop and I went to Palo Alto High School for 11th grade, then back to Miami for, for 12th grade. Cool. Uh, but grew up in a you know Jewish environment, Jewish day school, you know very traditional household. We did Shabbatot, we kept kosher, we fast for the fast. You know this was just a part. I never saw it as something religious. I saw it as this is my culture and been preserving it for thousands of years, and hopefully Bezat Hashem will be preserved for thousands of years to come. Um, so when I'd go to Israel in the summer, I would go to Israeli summer camps like Makabut Seir and Sofim, where I was able to stay in tune with uh, sort of pop culture, what was happening in Israel, maintain my Hebrew. Uh, and also maintain another element and aspect of my connection to Israel. So I was always very connected, but I think that my passion sort of evolved. Uh, all of my birthdays and uh, bar mitzvah and everything, whenever I would receive money, I would donate it to Israel, uh, usually to the FIDF. In high school, I would throw parties at money raised. I would give it all to the FIDF as well. And then things evolved. After high school, I joined the Army, served as a paratrooper, then after that started on college campuses and that's where the whole ideologically started. Awesome. So you, was it kind of a fait accompli all along that you were going to go to the army after high school? Was that sort of clear track for you? 
Yeah, so for me, from the moment I understood that uh, I'm a part of Am Israel, so this is my homeland, this is my country, this is my past and my future, um, I started to see it, okay, if every Israeli has to do the army, first of all, what makes me any different? Second of all, if one day we are persecuted from America, then I'd go to Israel, and why would I not need to serve for my country if this is a destination that, one, I want to go to, and two, I would go to if something were to happen. So very early on, I was like, I'm doing the army. Whenever my friends would talk about going to uh, different schools, I was like, I'm going to go to university after the army. I didn't even apply to university till I was in the army. I applied at the end of my service in order to get in. Um, so for me, doing the army wasn't uh, even a, a question. You know, I'm, I'm considered a volunteer soldier. But for me in my heart, it's not a volunteer. It's a service that I felt the responsibility to do. Um, but actually tying into the first thing that you told me about my name, I think a name has a tremendous impact on individuals. And I have two names. I have Rudy and Israel. Israel is my Hebrew name. And I think both of those names plays a huge impact on my own life. The reason my parents uh, called me Rudy is not because of the football movie, Rudy, because it's, uh, there's a story of a family during the Shoah uh, that were living in Germany. And the family was pretty assimilated, but Rudy was one of the children of the family. And he particularly uh, did not want to assimilate, wanted to keep their culture, uh, wanted to preserve their identity. And as anti-Semitism was rising, he kept telling his family, we have to leave, we have to leave. But they said, no, our, your, your grandparents were served in the German army. There's no way anything are going to happen to us. And then his sister got raped. And when that happened, he knew that it was like too late and he booked it and became a fighter uh, with the partisans, met his wife as a fighter. His wife was eventually killed. And after the war, he went back to Germany to find his family. He realized everyone was murdered. And then he found like 150 Jewish orphans and fought and found a way to get them to Israel. So I only really found out the depth of this story a few years ago, but it seems that I sort of have the same track as this name where I'm fighting against anti-Semitism. I don't want my culture to assimilate. I want to preserve uh, Jewish identity, culture, heritage, history uh, in a positive way, also be relevant to you know, a modern lifestyle because we live in a modern world. We have to also be realistic to the world we live in and trying to get Jews back, back to Israel, not only necessarily physically, but also primarily mentally. Amazing. So what was your army experience like? Did you... Uh, did you serve during any particular you know, conflagrations or anything going on during that time? And what was that like for you? So while I was in the army, I had a Mudanan. I served between 2011 to 2013. A Mudanan was the operation pillar of defense. We didn't go into Gaza, but there was a lot happening on the border. Also before Amudanan, I served for three to four months on the border of Syria. Uh, and this was right when the whole, uh, you know, Syrian civil war was breaking out. And there were a lot of uh, change of outposts between rebels and Syrian army and rebels and Syrian army. Uh, so we were seeing a lot of stuff happening there. Um, and yeah, so I finished my service in 2013. I served as an Israeli paratrooper, as a sniper, uh, and I still serve today. I'm on reserve. So every year I do about a month of service. And if there's ever a war, I have to go back in. And my younger brother, who's living with me in Israel, is also a paratrooper, uh, also a lone soldier, and currently serving on the border of Gaza, as we speak. Incredible. Hopefully, uh, you can remain safe, and especially during this crazy time of uh, where the the greater enemy right now seems to be a little microbe and not a, uh, a terrorist mm. across the uh, the border. But uh, so, Rudy, at some point, you started getting involved in Israel activism. Um, as you said, you, you, told, you called yourself an activist. You told me that's sort of your self-definition. Um, so how do you go from obviously being a very passionate pro-Israel person, which there are many of, thank God, in, in the Jewish community especially, to, uh, to the army? And then, you know, from there, how do you get to a person who's, who's really uh, taking things to the next level as a pro-Israel advocate? Yeah. So let me break down a little bit of, of my mindsets before I started going into this. I never saw myself as pro-Israel. I saw myself as a part of Israel. And the same way in the morning, I don't decide to be pro-Rudy. Obviously, I'm pro-Rudy. The same way I wouldn't call myself pro-Israel because obviously I'm Israel. I think uh, non-Jews uh, should be pro-Israel. 
and Jews should start seeing themselves as a part of Israel. And that's the same thing for the word advocacy and activism. I think an advocate or someone that does advocacy is a supporter of something. Uh, you know, you're, you're a fan or you're, you're a cheerleader. You're, you're, you're supporting a cause that is disconnected to you, but from a far away. Uh, an activist is more a player, someone on the ground that recognizes problems that exist and tries to implement solutions or uh, put in actions in order to change that. So I always saw myself as more an activist than a supporter, as someone that gets, you know, puts, you know, the effort, the energy, takes the actions. Um, so starting school at, uh, in Los Angeles, I started school both at Santa Monica College and UCLA at the same time. And I was more so active with Israel at UCLA because SMC is a commuter school and not many people are uh, even active there. But uh, at UCLA in 2013, it was the first time that they brought, uh, tried to pass a BDS resolution. Now, this was my first experience with uh, BDS, which I can definitely break it down. There's lots to talk about that. Um, but when I started to be active on campus, I was a part of 8Pi and we fought against BDS and we eventually shut it down. And I remember seeing the tears in my friend's eyes that, yeah, we won, we took it down. And when I saw my friend's tears, I was at, the, at that moment, like still, you know, in, in warrior mode, like we're, we're not done yet. And I realized when I saw his tears that we had already lost because the point wasn't about BDS passing or not passing. It was about this message being disseminated to the next generation. Now, a university represents the future political and ideological class of the next generation, meaning that if these people are taught that Israel's bad, that the Jews don't have a right to exist, that Jewish identity isn't real, that Jews are just some belief system, that Jews are white, all these false ideas, then what are we going to look like in the future when these people go into positions of power, whether they become lawyers, doctors, politicians, people in media? And so the problem is not a BDS resolution passing, because even if a resolution passes, it doesn't mean the university divests from Israel. In fact, it's illegal in most states in the U.S. Uh, for a school to divest from Israel until this state, no school has divested from Israel. But even if, let's say, UCLA divested from Israel, how much money is UCLA invested in Israel in the first place? So yes, we, we should not have... BDS passed, but the problem is not it passing, it's the problem that it's being mentioned and talked about without a social reaction, without a social rejection. That is the problem. And the moment that there's no social rejection and that it's being disseminated on campus, that's the moment that we already lost the battle. Now, I was looking at the people pushing the BDS resolution, which are the Students for Justice in Palestine on campus, SJP, and they were calling themselves pro-Palestinian. But when I looked at their rhetoric at their events, at what they were saying, at what they were doing, they would only talk about Palestinian suffering only when it had to do with the context of Israel. They would never talk about Palestinians dying by the thousands in Syria, by the hundreds of thousands of refugee camps in Lebanon, without equal rights in Jordan or suffering on the border of Gaza and Egypt. They would only talk about Palestinian suffering, of course, taking away the entire context, not talking about how there are three wars waged to ethnically cleanse the Jewish population. And the consequence of those wars is the reality that exists today. And just taking the reality that exists today cherry-picking instances of Palestinian suffering, removing all context, and then using that suffering and blaming everything on Israel. And so if you look at it, the way anti-Semitism has historically been spread is by finding the source of suffering of a community or population and blaming that on the Jews, right? The death of Jesus, uh, the Black Plagues, the economic situation in Germany. And that's sort of what's being done today, again, by finding the suffering of this conflict, which there are suffering on both sides, and that suffering has to end. And we can also talk about that as well. But taking that suffering and then blaming that all in Israel and then doing something additional to that, they would use something called intersectionality, meaning they would go to every single minority group on a college campus and they would say, oh, uh, black students, you suffer from racism and police brutality, or we suffer from IDF brutality and Israeli racism. Native Americans, some white people came and stole our land. Well, the Jews are a bunch of fake white people from Europe who came and stole our land. Women don't have equal rights, we don't have equal rights, and so on and so on building coalitions with all these minority groups to get everyone on campus and the entire left to the conclusion that Israel is bad. Now, this is what was happening on that hand. And then I was looking on the side of the Jewish side, the Israel side, or the quote unquote supposed to be pro-Israel side. And what were we doing? Nothing. The only thing that was being done is we would do events maybe once a semester, once in a blue moon, in our own little Jewish shuttles, in the Hillels, in the Chabads, in the Pi houses, amongst already pro-Israel Jews, talking about cherry tomatoes, ways to 
technology, all this stuff that like are nice accomplishments that American Jews love to talk about in order to make them feel proud about Israel. But the reality is that in order to communicate the story of Israel, you have to know who your audience is. And the audience today is a different audience than the older generation that likes to talk in terms of accomplishments, is a generation that likes to hear stories uh, with emotional narratives, uh, with justice, with liberation, with aspirations, with humanity, you know, stories that mean something, that have more depth, that have more meaning, that like shows if I support this, I mean, I'm supporting the right thing, not just something that created something nice that now I appreciate for uh, its development. And... I realized we were doing none of that. And when I would go and talk to people like, why aren't we going out there? The response was like, oh, well, we, we don't want to make it worse. If we go and engage, it'll just be worse. Let's just do things in our, own, in our own little community. And that really reminded me of my trip that I did in 12th grade uh, when I went to Poland for martial living. And for me, I saw a lot of students uh, from all over the U.S. and really all over the world shocked at what the Holocaust did. And for me, I was not shocked. I grew up, uh, half my family was exterminated in the Holocaust. I grew up in a Jewish setting. Like I know exactly what the Holocaust is and what the Nazis did. And it was not at all shocking to me to, to see it firsthand. It's something that I always knew that existed. What was shocking to me was the realization that the Holocaust didn't happen overnight. It took a decade to go from Jews are a part of society to now we're being burned in ovens and gassed in, in chambers. And what shocked me the most is the apathy and refusal to react and do anything by the Jewish community. And if you read letters between rabbis, between uh, community leaders, Jewish uh, president of the community, you would see they're saying the exact same thing as what I was being told as to why we can't go and engage. Don't do anything about it. If you do something, it'll just get worse. Uh, we just have to make friends with the power. In fact, some people even said, we need to make friends with Hitler because anyways, he's going to get into a position of power. So we better be friends with him. And yeah, he wrote Mein Kampf, but that was a crazy time in prison making excuses. And I realized that this was the exact same thing being redone on, on campuses. And I mean, the, the Nazi movement was really a movement that had a stronghold on campus. Kristallnacht was done by college students. And Hitler said, I control the textbook, I control the next generation. So this is kind of like happening in a different way uh, in America on college campuses. And so when I, when I realized that, um, I, I knew that this was going to take a large part of my life. I had given back my weapon in the army, but now I had to develop a new weapon, which was my tongue and the ability to communicate and narrate uh, the story of Israel. Uh, so after a year at UCLA and Santa Monica College, I took a year off to backpack uh, throughout Asia, like a good Israeli after the army. Uh, and in this trip, I was able to engage with all sorts of different peoples, learn about their histories, backgrounds, struggles, also share the story of Israel with them to see how they would uh, respond to it, what worked, what didn't work. And when I came back, I was kind of fed up of hearing all of the parents of my friends or my friends themselves saying, oh, this school is too anti-Semitic, I don't want to go there. Oh, this school is too anti-Israel, I don't want to go there. So I went on Google in 2016 and I said, number one most anti-Semitic school, Columbia University came up and I decided to <laughs> transfer. That was even after Edward Said died, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to transfer there and that's where I began uh, really taking the next step in activism. So this is where I, I think I've seen you online with some pictures and some very creative scenarios at Columbia. Uh, on the mall over there on the grass, the grassy area. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you did once you got to Columbia. So when I got there, uh, first, before anything, I decided to figure out what I was getting into. What are the groups for Israel, against Israel, what was happening? And not to my surprise, the pro-Israel movement was very weak uh, and the anti-Israel movement was very strong. And I don't necessarily judge a campus by how strong the anti-Israel movement is, but by how weak or strong the pro-Israel movement is. And the pro-Israel movement is, was, you know, let's not do anything. If we do something, it'll just get worse. Let's just like, you know, be passive. Let's not like rock the boat. And this really, you know, sparks a, a, a sort of a, a fire inside of me. It's like, no, we're, I'm not going to accept to live by the rules set by the world that I have to put my head down, that I have to be ashamed, that I have to be afraid. I want to create a different reality to change the climate on this campus in order to make it safe for Jews to empower the next generation of Jews to narrate our story to the campus and to make anti-Semitism irrelevant. It will always exist like any form of xenophobia, but it's our responsibility to keep it down.
So I got there, I realized that the current groups that existed were, would not uh, accept to do anything revolutionary. Uh, so I founded my own Prozor group, which today has been a movement that has grown to 50 different campuses, um, which was a grassroots movement. And we had three goals. Our first goal was to empower. Second goal was to narrate. And third goal was to defend in order, meaning the first goal was to realize that it's our responsibility to empower other Jews and allies. It wasn't only black people that fought for black rights. It wasn't only women who fought for women rights. So when it comes to Jewish rights, it should not only be Jews, of course, led by Jews, but we can allow space for non-Jews as well. And our goal was to give trainings to the leaders. So we had, the way we were structured, we had about 1,000 members, uh, plus minus uh, 75 ambassadors, which were our core group, and about, let's say, 8 to 10 board members. And to our 75 core group members, ambassadors, we would do training sessions for them every other week, how to talk about Israel to the left, how to talk about Israel to the right, how to do public speaking, how to debate, how to understand other narratives, how to create coalitions, really these tools that should have been taught by our Jewish institutions from a young age, right? Our day schools, our community centers, our, our summer camps, our synagogues, our rabbi, like everything. These are skills that should have been taught. We shouldn't have only been taught to be Jews in theory, but also Jews in practice. And so these, unfortunately, we were in a situation where we had to do with what we had, um, and we gave these training sessions. So our first and primary goal was to empower. The second was to narrate, being able to tell Israel's story in a language that communicates our message in tune with the generation, using language and vocabulary that they can understand and comprehend. So not the story of Israel, it's a story of uh, uh, people that, uh, uh, because of the Holocaust, decided to create a safe place, and it's the only uh, democracy in the Middle East that creates amazing technology and cherry tomatoes for your salad, but more so the story of Israel is a story of 4,000-year-old native people from the land of Judea, from Israel, that were displaced from the land forcibly by a Western white imperial nation called the Romans. Even during their forceful displacement, they maintain a constant presence in their native homeland. And during their displacement, they went through persecution, oppression, and extermination. And after 2,000 years of this, they eventually created the most successful indigenous liberation movement that ever existed, a movement that I would say empowers and inspires minorities and indigenous peoples throughout the world. And when you communicate Israel's story in that language, it's like, wow, now I get why the Jews have a connection to Israel. It's not a religion that feels the need to be safe there or imposed there or go there. It's a people that descend from Judea that were able to come back. It's the success of the Native Americans and the Native Canadians and the Tibetans and the Aboriginals and the Yazidis and the Maoris and the Kurds and the Coptics. It's the, the only time in history where a nation was actually able to succeed in kicking off their oppressive colonial force, revive their language, revive their civilization. How did so you formulate that frame? Was that your own... Uh, was that your own creation? Obviously, I'm not, I'm not saying it's invented, but how did you, was that something you worked out with other people or was this kind of something that intuitively you believed and, and formulated? Well, it's something that developed over time. I, I don't think I, I got that entire you know, line um, in, in one night. Um, it definitely was inspired by many different conversations that I've had um, with different individuals, whether it be Native Americans, understanding their struggles and the similarities with ours, or understanding, uh, you know, what is colonialism and how do you decolonize from that, having, you know, very crucial conversations and reading books that were able to get me to understand, okay, this is the language of the left, which talks about a language of justice that is important. And how can we communicate our story, not in a different way, it's the same story, but using different words that can communicate our story in a way that the person that we're talking to can understand. And this is just a, a tool that's very important just for life, no matter what you do, whether it's business, whether it's relationships, whether it's friendships, professional, whatever it is, you need to be able to communicate what you want in a way that the person you're trying to communicate to can hear and understand what you're saying. Because if you're saying something in the way that exists in your sort of echo chamber in your mind, but it's not in using a language that the person you're speaking to or the group that you're speaking to can understand, then you're just speaking to yourself. So we have to be very much so in tune with who we're trying to speak to. And then with time, I was able to formulate this uh, sort of uh, wording, and that's kind of what we did. So that's the whole narrate the story of Israel. And the third was to uh, protect, meaning any form of anti-Semitism from the far right to the far left, uh, we have to find a way to expose them, to uh, you know, intellectually destroy them, uh, to make the society that we reside in see them also as something bad. 
So for example, if you go to a college classroom today and an individual, let's say a white supremacist were to say something racist against black people, I can guarantee you that the vast majority of black students, especially those going to college campuses, are conditioned to be prepared to deal with those situations, both mentally and emotionally, and also ideologically and intellectually in a way to be able to respond to it. And the society today, thankfully, is conditioned to respond and to align themselves with those black students and to counter and to be against them. That wasn't the case 70 years ago. The black community and their allies did work in order to achieve what they've achieved today, and there's still plenty of more work to be done. When it comes to someone saying something anti-Semitic on a college campus today in a classroom, no one says something about it, and the Jews don't say something about it either. So in order to change what the society accepts, it's the responsibility of the Jews to make sure that anti-Semitism is seen as what it is and rejected. And that's why we say never again, not because we say the sentence and it doesn't happen, but because we say it as a commitment in each generation to make sure it doesn't happen again. And so the whole point of the Protect is to go break the coalitions of the groups against Israel and against the Jews to expose them for what they really represent and how they don't actually talk in the name of uh, whatever they claim to talk about if they're pretending to be pro-Palestinian. No, you're just using the suffering of Palestinians only when it fits your agenda in order to use their suffering as political ammunition to attack Israel and Jewish identity and Jewish legitimacy. And, you know, I would actually say that you're anti-Palestinian because it's actually functional for you to keep Palestinian suffering. And if you didn't realize yet, there's no future where Palestinians disappear in the land and there's no future where Israelis disappear in the land. So to be anti-one, whether it be anti-Palestinian or anti-Israel, it's actually being anti-both because there's no zero-sum game solution. You have to find a way to bring the populations together in order to find a way that both can coexist in a way that doesn't give up on Jewish aspirations, in a way that doesn't give up on Palestinian aspirations, in a way that resolves the injustices that exist on both. So you, I remember seeing some pictures of you uh, maybe standing outside with a, maybe a sandwich board uh, and, you know, kind of a provocative sort of invitation to people. What were some of the tactics that you used? And, and maybe that one specifically you could elaborate on because I think it brought perhaps the most publicity or notoriety. Yeah, so there are several things that, that we've done and I can definitely speak about them specifically to what you're talking about. I think it's the sign that we made that says Jews indigenous to Judea. Um, and we do those signs in order to get people to come and to start conversations and then to film those conversations. And either it's a really interesting, intellectual, open-minded conversation with a lot of nuance where we're able to break down some key ideas and then create content for people to be like, oh, wow, that's how I could explain the story. Oh, wow, I never understood that. Now I understand it. Or it leads to, you know, debates where people come and scream horrible things. And I also try to show people how to remain calm and to respond in a way that makes the person themselves, you know, bury themselves with their own arguments. Uh, so we try to create content with that. Specifically at Columbia, we did several things. We did events like Indigenous Unite, where we brought a, a Native American, uh, Tibetan, Yazidi, Kurd, and a Jew all together on a panel talking about their stories, struggles, and aspirations. And what you saw is that the stories and struggles are the same. Native people colonized by foreign power. The only difference was the aspirations the Jews achieved to be able to come home. Uh, we did uh, during one of their quote unquote apartheid weeks uh, where they have like a mock wall and, you know, try to disseminate false information to the campus and demonize Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, we had a 12 foot tall Pinocchio uh, put up right in front of their uh, wall with a sign that said apartheid week equals compassion abuse. You're abusing compassion that students have in order to change things. And just to get on a little tangent, a little side note, um, something very important on a college campus that we need to realize is that it's only four years right? There's freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. When seniors graduate, freshmen come in and within four years, you have a brand new campus. So when I first got to Columbia and I put like an Israel flag the first day on a table to start some conversations, see what was the climate, people came, ripped my flag, took the stuff that I was giving, spit at us, cursed at us. And, you know, after two years at Columbia, those juniors and seniors that had grown up in this being the way, like you can't say Israel or be pro-Israel on campus, when those seniors and, and, and juniors graduated and the freshmen and sophomore now became, you know, the juniors and the seniors, then things started to shift where this started to become the norm. Like it was accepted. The freshmen had, you know, always seen Israel flags on a college campus. So if you put in the work over time, you can change, but you have to have long-term uh, strategies. 
So one of the things that we did is we had the Pinocchio right in front of their wall, uh, which, you know, became a huge controversy. Oh, Pinocchio this, Pinocchio that. And then the school forced it to take it down and we launched a hashtag free Pinocchio. People started changing their Facebook filters with a Pinocchio behind bars. <laughs> and we just hijacked their week and it became Pinocchio week. Uh, the next year, we launched Hebrew Liberation Week during their quote-unquote apartheid week, where we celebrated Semitism, celebrated the story of Israel and the liberation. And we had a, a plane in the sky with a sky banner, you know, those banners in the sky for the commercials, sure. that said, Jews indigenous to Judea, hashtag Hebrew Liberation Week. And then all the anti-Israel professors at Columbia were like, no, Jews aren't indigenous to Judea, which in itself sounds ridiculous, right? Jews are not indigenous to Judea. I mean, come on. Jews come from Judea. You dig in the land, you find their artifacts, their history, culture, genetics, traditions, values, everything comes from this land. This is where they come from, right? And all the like people that were formerly part of this like older pro-Israel group were like, look at what you're doing, Rudy. Like, you know, you're, you're too extremist. All the professors are saying things against Israel now. I was like, first of all, I don't know in what hole you're living. They've been saying things against Israel every single class that they can. Uh, the only difference is that now I'm controlling the conversation and now they're reacting to what I'm saying. I'm talking about Jews being indigenous to Judea and to Israel, and now they're having a conversation about that instead of talking about how Israel's evil and all colonialism and apartheid and genocide, all these trigger words that they try to attach to Israel to demonize it. Now I'm the one in control and I'm putting them back into their position. And this is a mindset that unfortunately I think a lot of Jews uh, in the diaspora have lost. Uh, Israelis have this mindset of being, you know, warriors uh, and not uh, giving up and not being afraid. But a lot of Jews in the mindset in the, in the diaspora have, have grown up. I mean, uh, their parents tell them, you know, just get the good grade. Just just say what you need to say for your professor. We'll donate money to APAC and APAC will one day, uh, you know, support the politicians. But you know what? We did the same thing in, in Nazi Germany and in uh, the Inquisition in Spain. And look where that got us. And now we see like the, the, the youth coming out of college campuses and now getting into positions of power. And it doesn't matter how much money or support you have with APAC. Eventually, if you don't work from the top down and only, sorry, from the bottom up and you only work from the top down, then eventually these people will get into positions of power and your money and your, and your, and your support won't matter at all. So it sounds like you, you've spent some time as part of your research, so to speak, going to quote unquote the other side and, and learning from them and speaking with them. What did you do in order to penetrate or to access the opposition, so to speak? And what, if anything, did you learn from them? Yeah, uh, it started actually from a very young age. Um, I think around eighth grade, I went to my first uh, APAC policy conference. So for those who don't know who are listening, it's a big conference that happens in DC. Uh, APAC is particularly a, a support group to help, uh, to get America to help Israel. There's, I don't agree with them on every single thing. I don't support this two-state solution. I don't support the way the current uh, structures of the U.S. foreign aid is built, uh, creating a dependency of Israel onto America. There's a lot of things that I disagree with APAC. However, this conference is probably one of the, if not the biggest pro-Israel conference in the world where I think between 18,000 plus people show up from all different backgrounds. Uh, so the first year I went there was like, wow, this is huge. I have so many different people, different speakers. And then I went the second year and I'm like listening to the speakers and it's the exact same thing that they said last year. And you would hear things like a strong Israel is a strong America. Everyone would get up and standing ovation. And then the speaker <laughs> would say right after a strong America is a strong Israel. And again, a standing ovation. And I'm and at like a very young age. I, I already understood. I'm like, you literally did not say anything. And I, I just looked at what was being said and what was being done. It was just another echo chamber of people talking to themselves, making themselves feel good, pat on the back, but nothing was actually being done to change the situations at hand. So I decided that second year to go outside and to speak to the protesters. And that's where a lot started. Um, I, I realized a lot of the things that I was told to say, like, speaking about dates and in 19 this and the Buffalo Declaration and the UN Partition Plan and in 1948 and 1960, dates don't matter, right? Uh, you have to speak in narratives and use emotions and be able to tell a story. And there are a lot of things that were being talked about like uh, Del Yassin. And what is Del Yassin? What's the story and, and the context behind it? Oh, okay, I understand. There was a conflict where that village was harboring people that had tried to kill many Jews and the Jews went back in a time of war to capture those individuals. People were killed on both sides in the crossfire and the rest of the people eventually fled. And then a lot of lies and rumors were created uh, to sort of create fear and to galvanize hatred 
amongst the Arab population against the Jews, which actually backfired on them and caused a lot of the Arabs to flee and to leave uh, the area. However, without knowing the context, they're using the story of Del Yassin, and I don't know how to respond to it. And I was never taught the, the narrative of Del Yassin. So hearing these things and not being able to sort of even answer to them, and then going back and doing my homework, or even learning about different things about Palestinian identity that I was not taught in Jewish day school, and about real Palestinian experiences, like they do suffer, and they have been suffering, and a lot of people have died and lost their lives, and learning about the nuances of a community that I never had engaged. I was never taught to hate Palestinians, but I was never taught anything about Palestinians. And so that I think is also a crime that both sides are not taught about the humanity and the existence and the suffering and the beauty of the other side. And we sort of live as the antagonist of each other's stories. Um, and also learning how to debate and what works and what doesn't work and uh, sharpening my abilities. And that's where a lot of the debates things uh, started. And then I eventually did the army. And then when I got to college campuses, I realized what was happening at a very early age. And then, you know, reading the books of the other side and reading the, uh, seeing uh, movies that they produce and content that they make and going to all of their events and listening to their speeches and inviting some of these anti-Islam people to coffee and, and really like asking them questions to break down the psychology that exists in their minds and trying to understand like, what is the problem here? Are they just misinformed? Are they just anti-Semitic? Are they just completely, you know, brainwashed and thinking that Israel actually, because at the end of the day, everyone thinks they're the good guy. Yeah, even the bad guy thinks they're the good guy. So what are the problems or what are the, the series of problems and trying to figure out real solutions to change those problems? So did, did you find that people that were sort of diehard believers are they are they impressionable? Are they are they um, persuadable, or is it really only people on the margins and you know in the in, in the middle, the sort of the, the independents that really have a chance of shifting their mindset? I think the the same way in Judaism, we believe that every human can do tshuva. I think every person uh, can allow uh, love to enter their heart and truth to enter their mind. Um, sometimes it takes time. A lot of times it takes time. It's sort of like planted, planting seeds and eventually maybe it'll grow into something. Um, but when you engage with people, first of all, I don't know what people's opinions are until I engage with them. So a lot of times people write on my videos in the comments, uh, why didn't you do this? Why are you engaging with this person? I was like, well, I don't know who this person is until I actually speak to them. And I'm making this video not to necessarily only destroy this person, because I didn't know that that's what I was doing when I was going to communicate with him, but more so to show uh, the audience and to show what exists out there. Um, so yeah, I do think that there is always an ability to change someone, which is why I'm always willing to engage with every single person that I come across. Uh, even if you don't change their minds in the moment, you might plant seeds that eventually in the future, they might change their minds or have a more uh, holistic perspective on the situation. Um, then you'll, a lot of people that I engage with, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, they see Israel as horrible and, and bad and this and that. And usually in the conversation, they expose themselves, but then sometimes, and often, you know, not most times, but there are those cases where you speak to someone and because this issue is so polarized and so heated and, you know, it's so triggering that in the beginning, it might be a little bit tense and there might be like, oh, well, you did this and you did this. And. I right away try to like break out of that. You know, I'm not here to, to do victim Olympics. I'm not here to delegitimize your identity or to delegitimize your experience. Just don't do the same to me. Um, you know, if you say something that's not factual, I'm going to fact check you uh, because I know the history. However, I'm more so interested in having a conversation on how can we move forward? How can we create a reality that our generation comes together from the bottom up and figure out a way to live together? And those that are truly pro-Palestinian, eventually I'm able to break through to them and they're able to realize, oh, this is not just another uh, pro-Israel Zionist here to come and debate me and to say that Palestinians don't exist. This is the Zionist that we've been waiting to speak to. And I think that a lot of my opinions on trying to build coexistence are opinions that exist in the vast majority of the Jewish people and in the vast majority of the Zionist community. I think we just haven't been able to develop an ability to communicate to ourselves and we get too heated right away when we get into a conversation. And a lot of times I speak to people, they tell me, oh, well, Rudy, how do you stay so calm? I, I, you know, speaking to a neo-Nazi, I would have hit that person in a second. Like, how do you remain so calm? Well, first of all, I've always been a pretty calm and collected uh, person. I've never had rage where I lost my cool and saw red or black in my eyes. That never had that in my life. 
Um, but in those moments, I already realized coming into it that first of all, the person that I'm speaking to or the people that are around that person listening to the conversation, it may be the first time in their lives that they hear from a Jew. And it may also be the last time in their lives that they hear from a Jew. So in that moment, when we get into those conversations, we all hold the responsibility to represent Am Yisrael in the best way possible. And if we do, if we think about it that way, then we can take the ego out of it and the offensive part out of it and engage in that conversation in a way that the person you're speaking to and the people listening can understand our story in a better way and see us as the good guy and understand who we are. And so when you understand what you're getting into and the impact it can have, not only in front of your eyes, but way further than just what you can see and comprehend in this time and moment, then you maybe can shift your language and strategies in order to accomplish something much bigger. What, uh, when, when you talk to people and you, and you talk about what the future, the end game is, the, where things can go from here, it sounds like you have some level of optimism that there, there is a way forward, but at the same time that it, it may not be the conventional thinking. What is your uh, 30 second solution to one of the most complicated problems in the world? Yeah, so thankfully I was blessed with a high level of optimism. And I think uh, to be a visionary or revolutionary or to try to change history, you have to uh, be blessed with some sort of uh, uh, optimism. And I think if we look at what our ancestors have been through and what we've overcome uh, throughout the generations and also more recently uh, by the creation of Israel, if we were able to do that, then really I think that we're able to do anything that we put ourselves to. I think the, the reason why the conflict continues, not to talk about how the conflict started, but why it continues is because there are people profiting from it on all sides, including in the politics on both sides. And the politicians that exist both on, in Israel and in the Palestinian side, Israeli politics, the way it's, it, it works is it's like, let's find short-term solutions to be able to use that in our next cycle of elections that could be earlier than four years. Because if there's a break in the coalition, which seems to happen quite often in Israel, um, we need to use something that we were able to get done very quickly in order to get reelected. So they focus on like, what is best for Israel in the short term to stay in power and less what is good for the nation and the country and the, and the, and the region and the world long term. And that's not because of individuals, that's just because of the system that exists. On the Palestinian side, the leaders are not really the leaders of the people. I mean, the Palestinian Authority is what, on its 15th year now on, of its four-year term. Hamas uh, is also a, a dictatorship, and they don't represent their population. And it's in their interest to keep the conflict going because all of this foreign aid is being poured into their pockets and not going to their populations. And there's a reason why these individuals have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in their pockets. And it's not because they invested in Bitcoin at the right time or because they invested in uh, hand sanitizer and masks two weeks ago. Right. It's because it's their, it's their business. So the people in power have an interest in sort of either keeping this going or don't really have the capacity uh, to try to think bigger and to try to change things. So I believe that the change has to come from the ground up there. Besides the physical wall that exists between Palestinians and Israelis, there's also a psychological wall where we don't see the humanity of the other side. We see the other, like I said before, as the antagonist of our story. So we live in a story, in a movie, right? And we see Palestinians as the enemies to our movie. And Palestinians live in a movie and they see the Israelis as the enemies to their movie. But we have to be able to transcend that and to create a new movie where we're no longer the antagonist, where the antagonist is the, is the suffering that exists. And we have to come together as together the protagonist to end that suffering. And in order to do that, we have to start first communication humanization, and figuring out what are the list of injustices that both sides experience that have to end, and what are the list of aspirations that both sides fundamentally need to be fulfilled. And once we start having those conversations with local community members and leaders, then we're able to eventually find what a solution could be like. So uh, a proposed solution that I heard uh, that was pretty interesting and that could be a theoretical solution that could work is a sort of federation plan where you create different uh, uh, federations in Judea and Samaria, West Bank, and they would have more local power, but less uh, domestic power. And it would not be based on uh, who you are, but more so where you live. So an Arab would be able to move to Tel Aviv and move and vote uh, locally, uh, domestically, and a Jew would be able to move into one of these federations and then no longer vote domestically, but vote locally. And so you can create a checks and balance, like new system that has never existed uh, that works for both populations. However, this is just a theory. And what we need to realize is that there is no solution that will just be imposed on the situation. 
that's a very Western mindset uh, perspective of, oh, let's just impose a solution on those peoples and they're just going to have to live with it. No, we have to work on it from the ground up. We have to bring those populations together and we have to figure out how do we build something. So I'll give you an analogy just to finish off uh, that I think better um, visual, you can visualize what I mean in this analogy, right? If you're an artist, before you pick the frame of your masterpiece, right? The gold frame with all these like designs on it or whatever, first you need to pick your canvas, the size, the texture, then you pick your colors, then you come up with an idea, then you start painting, then you mess up, then you fix it. And then you like finalize your painting. You take a step back and you're like, wow, with this painting, I think this frame would work best. No, 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 no. This frame would work best. Okay. This one works. But right now we're talking about picking a frame as a solution without bringing the two artists together and even having a conversation on what type of painting they want to create. So no solution will be imposed. They won't come from the top down as the systems that currently exist. They will have to come from the bottom up. And so I am optimistic. And I think the younger generation is more open-minded to coming together. We're tired of going to war and we want to create a different reality for ourselves and our descendants to come. What's the name of, you said it's now kind of a movement. So on, on various college campuses, what, what's it called? Yeah, so when I was on college campuses, I, I was part of a, a little student group, but today I'm part of something way bigger. There's a vision movement uh, where we seek to uh, do several things. First of all, educate uh, the next generation of Jews in the right way. And not saying that a lot of things that were done weren't right, but there was a lot of holes in our education. Uh, how to be able to debate and to speak and to be strong and know certain facts and narratives and so on. Uh, so to educate the diaspora and also locally in Israel and to bridge the gaps that exist in Israel. So in Israel, you have the left against the right, the secular against the religious, uh, you know, the Sephardi against Ashkenazi, against Ethiopia, against Rusim. And you have all these different, uh, I call it ideological tribes. Once upon a time, we were physical tribes. Today, we're ideological tribes. And unfortunately, what we don't realize is that each one of these has an element of truth. And the real truth is all of them put together. It's like sort of like puzzle pieces. And once you add all the puzzle pieces together, then you get the image. And if you look at the, those that are religious in Israel, there's a lot to it. They're talking about preserving their traditions, their aspirations, their connection to a higher power, uh, their values, their history. Like, there's a lot that is very important in the religious sector. Then we look at the secular sector. They're talking about being interconnected with the rest of the world and having modern uh, science and health and math. Like These are all very important things as well. One does not contradict the other. In fact, they're both necessary for each other to, to coexist. And it's the same thing with the right and the left. The right is talking about security and identity. And the left is talking about humanity and justice. Why do these things have to contradict? And so unfortunately, the way society has been pulling each other apart is because we don't have a greater mission statement as a people, right? The goals of Zionism that brought all of us together to accomplish were accomplished. Zion, Jerusalem has been freed. So since 1967, we've been trapped in not having a conversation onto what is the next chapter of Jewish history. So a part of what vision seeks to do both outside of Israel and is in Israel is to get the Jewish community and world to start a conversation, especially the younger generation, as to what is the next chapter of Jewish history and which direction do we need to unite and start to work towards. Um, and we work with our sister organization called Habayit, which is an organization based in Israel that unites Israeli activists and Palestinian activists together. And when I say activists, I mean like real local community members, like the, the leader of the kfal, the village, uh, is not uh, someone from the Palestinian Authority, is actually someone that really represents that village. And so in having conversations with real leaders that represent the people and that aren't uh, sellouts or people that work for the Palestinian Authority, but really the leaders locally and bringing both of them together to start these relations and to start these conversations and to work on our way up. So that's more of what uh, I'm involved with nowadays. Are you seeing fruitful dialogue when those types of people get together? Yeah, of course, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we disagree on. I'm not going to pretend that it's, you know, all flowers and butterflies and peace and love. But for the most part, everyone going there has an interest in changing the solution, which is why most of the conversations that I have with Palestinians are usually better than the conversations that I have with people that are not Palestinian and claim to be pro-Palestinian. And a lot of the conversations with Palestinians are usually the best with those that actually live in the land. Because those that have a stake in actually changing the situation and making life better for all those living in the land are usually those that are 
capable of being able to come together and actually participate in such conversations. So for the most part, we're able to really uh, break down issues, understand one another, add perspective, add nuance, go to each other's like families, uh, invite each other for dinners, uh, really like get to know one another on a personal level and even become friends. And yeah, oftentimes, sometimes uh, one of my, my friends that go, that's a uh, part of Habayit, that's Palestinian, he um, actually lives in a refugee camp in, in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. And I posted a picture of myself on my Facebook page and an IDF uniform. And he sort of insulted me on my page. He said, uh, Yehudi Gizan, racist Jew. And it's like, what am I doing? I'm standing in a uniform defending my people. Like, there's nothing that I did that's racist. Like, I don't know why you have to, to say such a thing. But because we've been so conditioned to see certain imagery as triggering of emotions, um, you know, we sometimes get trapped and caught up into this like, you know, back and forth hatred. And it happens to a lot of Israelis as well. Like see, uh, you know, someone calling themselves even Palestinian. And it's like, oh no, you're not really Palestinian. And it's like, yeah, okay, there's a lot of history that uh, comes from this word, the Plishtim and the Romans called the land Palestine and Palestinians didn't even call themselves Palestinian in 1964. However, regardless, there's a real population that just so happens to be our cousins that call themselves Palestinians today. And we have to accept their identity and accept the, the reality of their situation and find a way to live together. So we have to, again, I, I use this word, but we have to transcend the conflict. We have to transcend these things that are keeping us apart, uh, transcend the things that uh, aren't al allowing us to, to see the humanity in one another and have conversations and be able to build those bridges. And for the most part, we're pretty successful and we're actually going to launch uh, very soon uh, a series. Uh, we haven't come up with a title yet, but we bring in three Palestinians and three Israelis and we have them sit down together and we, the, the moderator asks a question and then there's a, a whole conversation that sparks around this question. And it's really to show to the world, these are the real activists living there and this is what's happening. Not this whole Israel versus Palestine and the rest of the world wants the profit and you know, make it all like, seem like it's horrible in the media, but this is really what's happening. So we need to support people like this coming together in order to move forward. Dialogues of vision, vision dialogues. Sparks of vision. I'm trying to come up with a title for you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good stuff. Do you interface at all with other uh, groups? Does vision interface with other pro-Israel groups or, you know, Israel activist groups? You know, there's the Israel Campus Coalition. It's sort of an umbrella with many groups in it. Um, there's so many other organizations out there. Um, any relationships with them? Yeah, I mean, we, we work with, with everyone. We're not close to, to working with people. Of course, they should be pro-Israel. Uh, but the problem with a lot of these big organizations is I'm going to tell you a sentence that my dad told me when I first started getting involved with uh, the Jewish world. Uh, and it really applies to any sort of organization. He told me organizations are originally created to serve a cause, but eventually the cause will serve them. And that's definitely what I see happening to a lot of these big organizations that they focus like 90% of their efforts on fundraising and funding and like 10% on, you know, ripping videos of other people and posting it on their page as if they did it. And, you know, there's a lot of backstabbing happening between organizations and competing for donors. And they're not really focused on how to change things, but more so how to make themselves seem as the solution. And I don't think anyone is the solution. Uh, vision is not the solution. I think it's part of the solution. We're trying to start a conversation so that the generation becomes the solution. Um, I believe that real work real things to be changed is done on a grassroots level people that don't have interest in uh, you know having a job paid in uh, some office and being 60 years old and very disconnected from the reality that is happening but more so people that are on the ground uh either on college campuses or in the intellectual spaces on the ground in israel trying to create relations or making video content uh, so like people that are really on the ground those are the ones that the power have to be uh, that they have to have the power and organizations should see themselves as resources for those individuals and not the other way around. Rudy, in closing, where can people follow you, learn more about your work, your personal, uh, you know, if you're active on social media personally or through the organization, talk about the, some of the videos you've made, where, where are the best portals for people to really see what you're doing? Sure. So on Instagram, you can do Rudy underscore Israel. 
And the reason I have Israel is like I said in the beginning, it's my Hebrew name. It's not just because I love Israel. Uh, so Rudy underscore Israel on Instagram, on Facebook, just type in my name, Rudy Rockman, add my public page, not my private page, because I will not accept you. Um, there's, you know, a lot of the work is on, on Facebook, on Instagram, and also on YouTube and on Twitter. On YouTube, type in my name, Rudy Rockman, R-U-D-Y space R-O-C-H-M-A-N. On Twitter, the same thing. And those are my social media handles that you can engage with more content on. Rudy Rockman, Israel activist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.